welcome to the Ascend Podcast. We're your hosts. I'm Chris Hopper. And I'm Dan Harrison. Each week we delve deep with some of the brightest and most forward thinking, out-of-the-box minds in health, consciousness, mindset, and spirituality. This show inspires our listeners to improve their body and mind, and our intention is to fuse and lock the conscious warrior and shift the balance in the current paradigm. DMT stimulates the imagination. You know, DMT helps, you know, regulate, you know, consensus reality, as it were. So it also, you know, may be, you know, more specifically that, you know, DMT is mediating our perception of the visual world as well. Uh, You know, think about, you know, DMT as an endo matrix. It's the, uh, you know, naturally occurring matrix, which, uh, which, you know, gives appearance, gives, you know, form, uh, you know, to the world as we normally perceive it. I'm not sure if it's a, you know, going beyond the self as perhaps, you know, more of an expansion of the self. You know, plants are also, you know, perceiving, but it's occurring at a different level or in a different, you know, way than we're, you know, normally used to you know, thinking about such things. You know, kind of, you know, what is the soul? And, uh, you know, what is its relationship to consciousness? And, you know, to the living body and to the dead body. You know, does a rock have a soul, for example? Um, or does a plant have a soul? You know, so it you know, could be that, you know, DMT is this ultimate, uh, you know, technology. Hey, what's up, everyone? Living in the information age, it's easy to develop a false sense of how much we really know when all the answers to all our questions are just a few clicks on Google. But with all this information at our fingertips that can be accessed at any time, is it possible that it has become harder to accept not known? In this podcast with Dr. Rick Strassman, we discuss his thoughts on consciousness, the universe, and ultimately how DMT can serve as a powerful reminder that we know nothing at all. Rick Strassman is most known for the DMT studies that were featured in the amazing documentary DMT, The Spirit Molecule, that is available for free on YouTube. And I've also put the documentary in the show notes at the Send Podcast website as well. DMT is such an interesting and complex technology. And the reason I'm calling it technology is because I really think sometimes we define technology by a laptop, a mobile phone, or even listen to this podcast. But maybe if some form of intelligence was trying to communicate with us, it wouldn't necessarily have to be in the form of a radio. Maybe it could be another technology in the form of DMT. If you are not familiar with DMT, it is so fascinating. It exists in some form in every plant and animal, including our own human vessel. But due to our own inner chemistry, we usually don't access it. But if you expose yourself to DMT, many people talk about how it sends you down a wormhole into another large reality, into another dimension, another world, whatever you want to call it. Rick is certainly a big pioneer in the research of DMT and knows a lot about it. However, if I was probably to say to him he knows a lot, he would probably say he doesn't really know anything about it. But before we jump with this podcast, also please don't forget to leave a review of the podcast and just let us know what you think. So anyway guys, without further ado, and this is a great episode, Dr. Rick Strassman.
But I'd, Rick, I'd just like to say welcome onto the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on today. Yeah, definitely. We're both huge admirers of your like so important research and a point I wanted to bring up uh, to start this as well, Rick, and I've thought about as well, I think that we're living in a time where information is so accessible and it's everywhere as well. And it's so easy for us to develop this like false sense of how much we really know. And maybe this is due to the fact that we're now getting to a point in time where, in our human evolution as well, where we believe all the answers to our questions are just like a few clicks on Google. But with all this information at our fingertips that can be accessed at any time, I was thinking maybe it's possible that it has become harder to accept not known. Well, I think there's as much misinformation about really fundamental issues out there as there is, uh, you know, sort of a true understanding of what the issues are. Yeah, and I think it relates to what you're referring to. It's just so easy to get information, but, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard to determine, um, you know, its quality. Mm. I think as well, like, Rick, um, DMT, it serves as this, like, powerful reminder that we know nothing at all. And maybe that is one of the reasons, like, DMT does exist, because it's needed to give us this powerful reminder that we do know nothing. But apart from that, Rick, like, the billion-dollar question is, why do you think it exists? Well, you know, I think it exists because it possesses the properties that it does. It has certain effects. Um, and it's, you know, the right molecule for the right function. Um, you know, uh, you know, it would depend on your worldview in, you know, some ways. But, uh, you know, starting with the fact that DMT has certain effects on consciousness um makes you think that that is the reason it exists. You know, so what are those effects on, on consciousness? Yeah. Um, and uh, one can uh, sort of place that in an evolutionary context, a psychological context, a, a spiritual context. Um, and within the spiritual context, I mean, you could even uh, you know, subdivide that into the Eastern or the Western, um, you know, spiritual models, the inwardness of spiritual uh, information or the external nature of those spiritual realms. Um, You know, what I've been thinking the last few years is that DMT um, stimulates the imagination. And by imagination, I'm not referring to things made up but things which we are able to perceive, um, you know, sensory, emotional, you know, physical uh, kinds of phenomena, as opposed you know, to the intellect, which you know, deals with abstract ideas, abstract things. You know, so what um, seems to occur with DMT is that it stimulates the... Uh, I don't know, the vocabulary of the imagination or the phenomenology of the imagination. Um, You know, so it isn't as if that, well, you know, without a well-developed intellect to understand what those contents of the imagination uh, contain, the the, uh, information uh, contained in those imaginative contents, 
you know, then it's just a trip. It's interesting. It's visual. It's emotional. It's, it's even inspiring. But um, yeah. one, I think, needs to also develop, you know, the ability to interpret what you're seeing uh, in a state of heightened imaginative activity. Um, you know, so I think to you know some extent, you know, that uh, helps explain the you know varying degrees of impact that a psychedelic experience has on people. Yeah, definitely, Rick. It's, it's like for me, it's like the planet like needed a way of communicating with us in like a strange way, and it placed like DMT in all plants and all humans and all animals. Right, right. It you know definitely you know, seems to be. A you know conduit of communication. It you know seems to be a means by which things that we're normally not aware of uh, you know enter into our minds. Yeah, definitely. I think as well, Rick, the connection of DMT and in in the, in the connection with all species as well on the planet is so fascinating. And I know that your research um, has uncovered that potentially that every living organism in the world has DMT in it potentially. And if that is the case, like this new age idea of like being fully connected holds true that we are connected by this one like simple molecule, and it could be this like common molecular language that we really could communicate or even create with as well. Well, I think that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, I sometimes like to refer to DMT as a spiritual Esperanto, you know, kind of a uh, you know yeah. common language that is. You know, which is, you know, shared by all organisms which contain DMT. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if every living creature contains DMT, but, you know, so far it's been discovered to exist in every mammal that's been examined and, uh, you know, hundreds if not thousands of plants. But uh, it, you know, could be, uh, you know, that, you know, some organisms contain it and, you know, some don't. But, uh you know, it's still an open area of investigation. Yeah, definitely. I was wondering as well, like, right, all like all the studies that you've done on like DMT, were they all carried out in like a lab environment? Yeah, yeah. The uh, results, the stories, the narratives, the case reports that I uh, describe in my DMT book were all carried out. Uh, you know, during the performance of their research. Uh, study at the University of of uh, New Mexico back in the 1990s. Yeah, I was just just because Rick, I was just wondering, like, if there was a difference between like nature versus a, like a laboratory environment. Um, well, you know, even though the firsthand or you know close to firsthand reports uh, that I emphasize in my in 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 my DMT book come you know, from the laboratory. Um, Study. I'm, you know, I'm getting emails all the time from people who describe their DMT and ayahuasca experiences to me, and um, you, you know, I don't think that I don't think that the laboratory environments influence to a great degree the nature of people's experiences. You know, sometimes. Uh, you know, uh, well, <clears throat> you know, sometimes people point out to me um, that perhaps the description of being in a laboratory or a highly technological environment um, that, you know, my volunteers reported was a function of their being in the hospital. 
But if you read accounts about ayahuasca experiences, which occur in the jungle, uh, you know, there's in, uh, you know, there are encounters you know, with aliens, with uh, you know, highly over technological you know, societies and uh, species, creatures, flying saucers, laboratories, um, you know, things like that. So. Uh, I think, you know, one of the interesting you know, things about, you know, DMT is it's, um, is, you know, because it works so quickly, um, you know, that it's a more of a pure, you know, pharmacological effect um, with the longer acting, uh, you know, psychedelic, you know, substances, you have more time to interact with the experience you're um expectations i think play more of a role in what you're perceiving but i think with you know dmt the you know fact that you're there in one or two heartbeats it makes it you know very hard to um to you know kind of modify the contents of the experience i think you just you know bring your own personality your own brain um your own expectations uh in to the you know, session, you know, to only a, a you know certain degree. Um, otherwise, I think it's just the pure activation of wherever in the brain you know DMT is is you know working, and uh, and you know then you're um, thrust in into wherever uh, you know DMT seems to lead you. Yeah. I like I like that breakdown there. Right? I liked how you said that. But Rick, have you looked at like the functionality of DMT inside of like say like plants versus animals? Um, well, you know, with respect, you know, to the botanical, you know, presence or properties of of of, of you know DMT, I you know, haven't really looked in, into that very much. You know, Dennis McKenna is you know kind of the world's expert on you know botanical DMT and related compounds, but uh, you know, primarily, uh, uh, well, I, you know, ran my study in humans, and uh, mm. I'm a lot more, you know, current on, you know, the animal literature. Rick, I was wondering as well, um, I think I heard you mention before as well, um, in another statement that you made, was talking about that the human um, function of the brain requires, like, DMT for normal function, and you were talking about how maybe, like, DMT is actually, like, mediating our perception of the natural world. Is that true? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a you know, possibility which is raised by the you know, fact that DMT is, is actively transported into the brain across the blood-brain you know, barrier using energy. And there's only a very few, a uh, small number of compounds that the brain treats that way, uh, you know, things which are critical for its function, which it's not able to make on its own. Um, you know, things like... Uh, um, uh, like uh, you know, glucose you know for energy, um, specific amino acids for protein synthesis, which uh, the brain isn't able to make on its own. Uh, you know, so DMT is one of those compounds that the brain expends energy to get into its confines. You know, so that would make you you know wonder. Well, you know, why does the brain need DMT and uh, yeah. You know, the most obvious answer is that, you know, DMT helps, you know, regulate, uh, you know, consensus reality, as it were, as a result of existing within the brain, within a, 
a you know narrow you know window of of uh, you know concentration. You know, um, one of the expressions I like to use about you know DMT within that context is that that it may you know function as a kind of reality thermostat. You know that concentrations, well, if they get too high in the brain, become strange, uh, and if concentrations become you know too low, they become maybe flat and dull. You know, so uh, it you know may be the case you know that the brain requires a, well the maintenance of a certain you know narrow you know window of DMT levels. Um, you know what's also interesting is you know more recently a group in Wisconsin has discovered high levels of the enzyme and the you know gene activation responsible you know, for that enzyme um, you know making DMT in the primate retina you know the eye so it also you know may be you know more specifically that you know DMT is mediating our perception of the visual you know world as well. Well, well, I was just gonna say, like, yeah, like it's kind of like when the when DMT like strips away like the brain's filter on reality, really, isn't it? Well, I'm not sure if it strips it away as you know much as maybe you know generating it, it you know, maybe generating our view of reality, or at least you know mediating it somehow. Well, you know the well, well, you know the movies Matrix, you know where everything is a computer generated reality yeah. you know mm-hmm. you could even uh, you know think about you know DMT as an endo matrix it's the uh, you know naturally occurring you know matrix which uh, which you know gives appearance gives you know form uh, you know to the world as we normally perceive it which you know makes you wonder what would happen if you could you know do a you know knockout uh, you know, species or, you know, knockout organisms, uh, which, you know, no longer make DMT. Like, you know, for example, if, 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 uh, you could engineer a rodent to have no more DMT, you could, you know, blockade the gene responsible, you know, for the enzyme that makes DMT. But, you know, what would the, you know, consciousness of, well, of that animal, uh, you know, be experiencing? Um, you know, so yeah, it's, uh, it starts to get a little strange when you think about you know DMT as you know generating our you know, perception of the world. Uh, yeah. You know because uh, well, it makes you wonder you know why that's the case, um, and it also makes you you know wonder if our you know current you know cons- if if our current you know consensus reality. Is a you know DMT you know mediated hallucination, you know what does that have to you know say about you know f- about cause and effect and free will and uh, you know our you know sense of you know solidity you know morality uh, interactions with people and the environment, uh, you know so it uh, opens up a whole can of epistemological you know worms as it were. Yeah, it kind of affects nearly everything, really, isn't it? The whole DMT, it really looks into like all aspects of like reality and beyond, and that's why I think it's in- so interesting that it kind of does change the way our perception views of like what we are looking at, like through ourselves, and it it does like rip this like filter mechanism way, and it seems to allow us to go beyond the self. Well, I think it allows us to go beyond our you know normal understanding of the self. Um, it you know certainly 
you know provides the access to you know tap into things which we don't you know normally uh, perceive. I'm not sure if it is a if it's say you know going beyond the self as perhaps you know more of an expansion of the self. Yeah, definitely. I think as well with that expansion of the self as well. I think something that came to my mind there, Rick, was like um, activating the senses. And I think we know about the senses that's been documented. And I really think there's like certain other things that we can do to, or take, like other to activate other senses. And maybe DMT is one of them. It stimulates, you know, the imagination, and you know, the imagination is the repository of you know sensory data, um, and especially visual. So, um, and I, you know, think, you know, that the presence of the gene in the retina that makes, you know, DMT, um, you know, points, you know, to the importance of, you know, DMT and the, you know, sensory, you know, mechanisms uh, of humans and other animals. It, it's interesting, you were asking about the presence of DMT in plants, and we usually don't, you know, think about uh plants as you know perceiving especially with you know especially with you know sense organs um, yeah. you know so even if you know DMT in plants provides a means of communication um, you know it kind of makes you wonder if perhaps uh, you know plants are also you know perceiving but it's occurring at a different level or in a different you know way than we're you know normally used to you know thinking about such things yeah, I think that's really interesting how you said that because I think there is this there's a, there's intelligence in plants that we don't fully understand. We really don't. And I, but I think as well something I want to touch on with you, Rick, as well is um like DMT and the connection and unlocking DNA. And I actually heard um Dennis McKenna talking about how like DMT's existence may be a message. And he talks about like if some intelligence was trying to communicate with us, it wouldn't be necessarily in the form of radio. And he actually he, I think he said it. He talks about building a message in DNA. But something in the correlation of that which fascinates me a lot, um, and a lot of psychedelic reports, not all of them, but in quite a few cases, many people mention um, like an interaction with like serpents. And I know as well, I've looked back as well, in many ancient texts, there's always records of these like serpents and stuff like that. But however, a theory I have, maybe the serpent like is in the past and now as well, it's just like a metaphor for DNA. So maybe DNA, uh, sorry, maybe DMT can unlock or tap into something like a message within our DNA? Like, have you ever thought about that? Are you familiar with Jeremy Narby's work, The Cosmic Serpent? Uh, no, I'm not. Oh, oh, you must read his book. It was written in the 90s. Uh, you know, Jeremy is an anthropologist. He's a Canadian, lives in Switzerland now, anthropologist, got his you know doctorate at Stanford. And he spent a lot of time in the Amazon, you know, drinking ayahuasca. And uh, he, you know, believes you know that you know DMT allows us to visualize our DNA through wow. a you know photoelectric you know piezoelectric you know photoelectric you know photons are you know somehow uh, um you know critical you know to his theory um you know so that's a you know theory that you know Jeremy developed maybe 20 25 years ago now and uh uh I think it's you know got some merit now DMT you know, will do what's called, it will do this thing called intercalation uh, within the DNA. Within the DNA, it will, um, you know, kind of uh, place itself within the double strands of the DNA. 
um, almost like a you know nucleotide. You know, so it is able to, you know uh, you know to uh, you know deform or you know or you know or to you know change the you know conformity uh, of you know the DNA you know double helix. So it you know could be that that is one of the ways in which uh, you know you know DMT uh, and consciousness and you know DNA seem to uh, you know be related to each other. You know, but Jeremy uh, you know develops the you know photoelectric you know photochemical theories to a much you know greater extent than I can summarize. Yeah, that was re- that's really interesting because that, I think as well maybe when I was thinking about this, Rick, maybe when people do try and extract all the information like in correlation to DNA as well and from DMT they maybe can't because I've thought about this like the, the maybe the verbal like the the verbal communication is like a difficult one because I really feel language has its barriers but maybe like maybe the uh, DMT is some form of other communication that we don't fully understand yeah I mean that could be the case um you know, I don't. I, I still don't think we've got an adequate, you know, language uh, that helps describe what people perceive on DMT. You know, other psychedelics um, as well, but I think especially in the case of DMT, we just don't have that vocabulary. You know, so the well, well, um, well, the message of the DMT experience. You know, the information content contained in it can be kind of elusive and uh, I think that's one of the reasons that people have you know turned to Latin American shamanism or to east or you know to the eastern religious you know models as a you know way of um, describing the information content uh, you know one of my old close you know friends is a mathematician from UC Santa Cruz named Ralph Abraham um, who's taken a lot of DMT and as a result, he concluded that the universe is made of uh, it's you know made up of you know vibrations. And as a result of his DMT experiences, he developed the you know, field of you know, visual mathematics, which he's developed you know to model the you know vibratory state of the universe that he discovered uh, on DMT. And you know, so I've you know talked with him about you know the notion that you know people don't seem to be able to return with much you know verbal information you know from the DMT state, and you know he you know believes that you know that could be because you know DMT is exposing a you know world of mathematics as opposed to a you know verbal world, which is a you know very interesting idea. Well, it certainly is an interesting idea. It kind of makes you think as well, like is like information endless really and it makes you also think is DMT endless as well and I think that's a fascinating concept of to really fathom the experience of itself seems to go on and on and on um, so you wonder if the information that's possible to obtain from that state is infinite as well um, you know, one of the you know pr- problems with you know DMT, especially smoked or in, you know snorted or if it's injected, is it's quite brief, and it uh, requires a you know, fair amount of energy, you know, just to be able to orient 
uh, in that state. And, you know, by the time you are oriented and can start interacting with what's there, you start coming down. Um, and um, a couple of months ago, a colleague of mine from Japan and I uh, you know, published a you know, paper describing a you know model for extending and prolonging the you know DMT experience. You know it's you know not been done yet. You know, but we kind of you know lay out the you know pharmacology of uh, establishing you know that kind of a state. And you know theoretically, uh, it's you know now possible to put somebody in the DMT state and to and you know to keep them there you know for a very long time, you know for hours even. And you could adjust the concentrations go up or down depending on how the person is doing what they're interested in accomplishing so it you know could be uh with the application of that model we'll be able to start uh you know characterizing that state more uh precisely but also i think we'll be able to start extracting you know some more information you know from that state especially in the interactions with what people commonly describe as, you know, beings who, you know, seem to be quite intelligent, you know, contain information, um, you know, but it's hard to establish, you know, you know, consistent and stable communication with them. So it, you know, maybe with, you know, prolonging the DMT state, that communication will become easier, you know, um, you know, to manage and could, uh, and, you know, could yield some, uh, you know, quite interesting information. Mm, certainly, it really is in, very interesting. And um, so, like when Dan mentioned uh, DNA before, Rick, um, it made me actually think of like like everyone talks about like this visual technology, but maybe like DNA is like the ultimate hidden technology, and we've yet to really uncover it. And it's like um, in the spirit molecule, you speculate that like the pineal gland could very well be a prime producer for DMT within the human organism. And I know since the more recent studies like have been carried out and detected like DMT production within the pineal of rodents. So like a lot of people like talk about the pineal gland, like it's thought to play a role in regulating sleep cycles as well, which is like very interesting. So the correlation with like DMT playing a role in dreams is really fascinating and it's like it's like so Rick, is there any proof that DMT is one of the reasons, like, we dream at night, or if it's, like, still currently speculation at this moment? You know, still speculative. Uh, well, you know, concentrations of DMT in the bloodstream and urine, spinal fluid, whatnot, are extremely low in the range of a trillionth of, um, you know, gram you know, per milliliter uh, of fluid. And we still don't really have, you know, the technology to determine, you know, circadian rhythms of naturally occurring DMT, if, you know, concentrations of, you know, DMT increase or, you know, decrease in non-drug states which resemble put on by giving DMT like dreams or near death or things like that. Um, but, you know, you know, to the extent that non-drug states resemble those brought on by giving DMT, you have to think that there's some, you know, similar biological, you know, process going on. Um, it you know may turn out you know that we have to you know look at the expression of the gene uh, in order you know you know to determine the activity of the DMT system. Uh, it you know may be easier you know to do that you know than 
um, to develop the technology to you know measure levels of you know DMT itself. You know, um, you know, uh, um, you know, looking at you know the act at the activity of you know the genes um, as opposed you know to the gene you know product as it were you know may turn out to be more fruitful. You know, one other thing also that's interesting is uh, you know to keep in you know to keep in mind the you know fact that the lungs are the primary you know source of um, well of you know mammalian DMT. Um, and you know people seem to live normal lives without a pineal gland you know so even though it you know was you know determined that you know the living rodent you know pineal gland contains dmt um you know that may you know not be the everyday you know 24 you know 7 um you know source of uh you know mammalian dmt you know that seems to be from the lungs and that's been known for maybe 60 years uh you know by now yeah, it is. It is so uh, so fascinating that four process uh, four process that there may be this connection between like DMT and dreams, and that like you said before, there does need to be more research done it. And I think that more things will come to light when we do some more like when more research like is allowed to be done on it. But I know as well, um, you speculated about this in your book a bit as well, and you speculated about in the documentary as well that um, the body produces like DMT when we're in like e- extreme amount of stress. And that's like the kind of stress that we experience like during near death. So if that's true, like what is the purpose of like DMT in death? Is like is it part of the body's process and like sending the soul or a life form somewhere else? Maybe it is. You know, it could be. And it's interesting, you know, there is uh, you know, some increasing uh you know, research uh, you know, looking at, you know, the relationship between the dying, you know, process and, you know, levels of DMT. You know, there's a group in Hungary right now, uh which has, uh, you know, determined, you know, that the brain will live, you know, longer in a state of low or no, uh, you know, levels of oxygen if there are uh, increased, you know, levels of, you know, DMT around. Um, in other words, uh, you know, DMT is, you know, is uh, neuroprotective in conditions of anoxia. Or you know low oxygen um, in the blood and in the brain, you know. So it you know could be that you know one of the things which occurs in the state as you're dying, you know, the anoxic state when the brain's not getting enough oxygen, is that you know DMT is released or increases in order to you know protect the brain from conditions of low oxygen. But uh, still, that begs the question, well, you know, why are the, uh, you know, subjective uh, effects of, of, you know, DMT, you know, so radical, uh, uh, even if it is, you know, neuroprotective? Why couldn't, you know, such a, you know, neuroprotective agent just be, you know, calming or, uh, you know, just, you know, put you into a, like, a, you know, dark, warm state uh, as opposed to a completely florid psychedelic one? Uh, you know, so it you know could be that the you know two you know things are are well well that the two you know findings are related that you know number one you know DMT is you know helpful you know to the dying brain but it's also released um, as a, a you know function or in order to uh, you know you know kind of uh, um, you know provide the you know transition of you know consciousness. Yeah. You know, from the body, you know, to outside of the body, it could be like the 
you know, like the tugboat or the ferry or the bridge or the angel or, you know, some kind of intermediary uh, of, you know, consciousness between it residing in the body and residing outside of the body. Yeah, definitely. Rigid is it. It's interesting how like DMT, like the hormone that's activated, it may be possible that that actually fac- like facilitates like the entering and the existing of the soul as well. And I think the correlation between that is it is interesting. I mean, it also, or it, you know, in an important way that you know is uh, you know kind of dependent on your definition of the soul. Like, is you know the soul you know the life force, or is it one's you know personality? Or is it one's consciousness, you know, the awareness of what's going on on the inside and the outside? You know, so I think it's good to consider, you know, kind of, you know, what is the soul? And, uh, you know, what is its relationship to consciousness and, you know, to the living body and to the dead body? Um, You know, does a rock have a soul, for example? Um, Or does a plant have a soul? You know, so... um, I think when we're discussing, you know, DMT and the soul, um, you know, it, it, it is, you know, tempting to, uh, you know, to consider relationships uh, between the soul and uh, and the body and DMT. You know, perhaps, you know, the soul uh, is an energetic, you know, process which, uh, you know, somehow utilizes DMT. Or is you know mediated through the activity of DMT um, in you know such a way that we're you know conscious of the soul's movement, and you know this could occur in everyday life too, uh, in states of inspiration or even you know just everyday experience. One you know feels the movement of the soul in in you know the body, uh, introspectively you know subjectively. Um, you know, sometimes we're, you know, more inspired, you know, sometimes we're less inspired. Um, and, you know, that could, uh, and I think, you know, that is a reflection of the movement of the soul. Um, but it's a different kind of, you know, soul in humans, I think, than might occur in lower animals or in plants or in uh, inanimate uh, uh, kinds of objects. Wow, that's an interesting thing to think about that, how it, how the soul could vary differently in uh, animals compared to humans. That's so interesting, that. Yeah, I know. It makes me wonder, like, how, how they're different, like, how what levels are these, like, reaching on? I know, it's so, it's so fascinating to put your mind into that perspective, isn't it? Yeah, you know, that's, you know, one of the reasons I've been so intrigued, you know, by the Jewish you know, medieval philosophers, is, you know, they were, like, these mad geniuses who... Uh, were you know physicians and you know scientists at the same time that they were you know master you know theologians and you know metaphysicians you know so they could uh you know kind of speak at you know the same time about the different kinds of you know souls and animals and plants and and you know rocks or trees you know from the point of view of Aristotle and you know could also uh you know look at um you know the contribution you know, to their thinking of you know the religious uh, scriptures and and uh, and you know texts on, you know that they were also extremely familiar with. Mm. And just like keeping on to this like correlation, like and connection to ancient times, in like it's like we're well looking through like the DMT phenomena, like through a scientific lens. Do you think there's also this? A value of glancing into our past as well, like to learn more about this molecule. Like, like we've been talking as well. Like mystic traditions seem to emphasize like 
the importance of like the pineal gland in these altered states of consciousness and psychedelic psychedelic vessels like containing DMT or similar compounds. Do you think there's like the importance like woven into these patterns? Yeah, I think the you know relationship of these uh, states of consciousness you know to the anatomical location of the pineal gland is yeah it's just you know too consistent to be a coincidence you know so to speak um, yeah you know the ancient esoteric you know physiological spiritual systems you know located uh, the spot or the uh, experience of the highest possible spiritual state uh you know in the you know same location as the pineal gland you know it's uh you know it it is you know directly you know below the you know fontanelle on top of the head which is you know the old location of the you know pineal gland in in you know lower animals and uh like an inch or you know two down is you know the location of the human pineal um yeah you know and we were talking about you know the lungs usually producing DMT and you know the pineal sometimes uh, you know so it you know may be that at certain times of extreme spiritual uh, exaltation that the pineal gland kicks in to make DMT but you know uh, that still remains uh, speculative you know it's it's interesting I have you know heard from a you know hand you know, full of uh, you know people over the um, over the years, who have had their pineal glands removed or destroyed, you know, sometimes um, you can develop cancer of the pineal and it's destroyed. You um, you can develop an overgrowth of the pineal, you know, like a cyst, and it has to be removed. Uh, you know, sometimes you can have a stroke, which uh, you know could destroy you know the pineal gland. And these uh, you know people you know seem to all extent and you know purposes. Uh, you know, completely normal, and in a couple of cases, their spiritual you know lives you know seem to increase after their pineal glands were destroyed or were removed. So uh, I think you know uh, I think you know from the you know medical you know biological you know point of view, uh, we still don't really you know know enough to confirm or refute the. Old, you know, theories of the spiritual, you know, significance of the pineal. Yeah, it is. It's interesting, Rick, how, how like all these ancient cultures, they were so fascinated by like the effects what the pineal gland could bring to the human civilization, and that there was there was this big importance, in my opinion, as well. If you look back in history, and I think like um, through history as well, the use of DMT stretches it stretches all the way back through history, and it's always been. I, I seen something where it was assumed that for thousands of years. Like indigenous tribes and cultures have always been using like DMT in rituals and even cultural ceremonies as well. And I remember Graham Hancock as well. He talks about he believes that the um, the burning bush of Moses was actually was that that was a process of smoking DMT. That could be, yeah, yeah. You know that. Uh, well, well. So that you know theory came from an anthrop, you know, from a you know psychologist in Israel named uh, Ben Shannon, uh, who you know published it maybe ten, eleven years ago or so. Yeah, and you know the acacia uh, is yeah. you know presumed and you know by some people to be the burning bush. And uh, if that were the case, then you know Moses would have you know been inhaling you know levels of you know DMT vapor from a you know burning acacia plant. But um, you know that bespeaks the whole you know issue of 
you know, prophetic experience in the Bible? Is it a result of, you know, some plant or some drug or some, you know, mushroom or some fungus, which is uh, responsible, you know, for, you know, the, uh, you know, DMT-like, you know, re- um, well, uh, or the DMT-like reports of prophetic experience. You know, but if you, um, you know, think about, you know, the body is able to make, you know, DMT on its own, uh, yeah. you know, then you can dispense with, you know, having to, you know, look f- you know, for some outside source. Yeah. And, uh, y- and, you know, then you would turn your, you know, focus, you know, to what could, you know, possibly increase the production of, you know, one's own, uh, you know, DMT in those situations. Yeah, I like I liked how you said that because if you do think back all these civilizations like maybe they didn't like they didn't always need to access it from like uh from the like the tree. They could just basically just access it within themselves and that, I liked how you said that. And I mean my thinking as well, maybe DMT and all these other like natural hallucinogens like have aided in the in the um in our human evolution in the past and they've been left here for our human evolution. Yeah, I think, you know, to the extent that you know DMT increases our imaginative capabilities, you know, then we're open to uh, being able to perceive things that we aren't, you know, normally able to. Um, and you know, those could be important and helpful. You know, they could also be, you know, destructive and dangerous. So I think that's you know where the development of one's intellectual and ethical and you know moral you know muscles. Uh, you know, comes into play to be able to extract that information, but also to apply it in the optimal way. Mm, definitely, and like I think, like right now, we're seeing so much like evidence that maybe DMT has played a role in our human evolution, and I think that's exactly from what you've been saying. Like DMT is creating these like ideas through the imagination, and I think that's incredible. And it's like this compound that is great potential in these domains of scientific understanding but something i wanted to touch on like rick was the spiritual exploration and like how much do you think dmt plays in the side of spiritual exploration like because it does seem to to me that many people are experiencing this intelligence yeah i mean clearly people describe the awareness of an intelligence in the dmt space you know the state of consciousness which is you know brought about by you know high levels of DMT in the body or in the brain, um, yeah. But I I think it's still I think that the jury is still out regarding what is the exact you know nature of that information yeah. and you know what is it good for, you know like in shamanism you know Latin American you know shamanism uh, where they drink ayahuasca which contains you know DMT, you know the kind of use to which they put that information is, it's, you know, oftentimes bad. Uh, Spiritual, you know, warfare, black magic, you know, killing each other, you know, cursing each other, making each other sick. You know, so I don't think that, you know, that, you know, necessarily that information is automatically, uh, you know, useful or, you know, helpful. I think it can be turned one way or the other, depending on the person who's undergoing those states and what their motivations are. You know, I, I you know, think of the DMT state as kind of like, you know, nuclear energy. Um, it can be used to kill cancer cells. It could be used to, you know, power a generator that 
you know keeps you know, people alive and lights on and computers going, or it can you know level a huge metropolitan city, you know. So um, I I think it all depends on you know set and setting as it were, you know what's your intention, you know what are you experiencing these things for, um, what kind of person are you. Um, you know, what are your motivations? Uh, you, you know, what's your training? Um, you know, how do you, you know, plan to use what you've uh, obtained in that state, either, you know, f- you know, for your good or, you know, the society's good or the planet's good or, you know, for their harm, you know, to abuse people or, or to abuse the planet. Well, you know, Ernst Younger, um, you know, was a you know, German who, you know, fought in, you know, World War One. And uh, was a close friend of Albert Hoffman, and uh, Ernst Younger, you know, wrote a book called, I think, Blood and Guns or Blood and Steel or Steel and Guns or you know, you know some, inc- you know, you know some uh, extremely, uh, you know, you know kind of macho, you know, militaristic uh, scree, which was. Uh, which was loved by the Nazis. You know, the Nazis, you know, loved Ernst Jünger and uh, his work and his, you know, teachings and, you know, whatnot. And Albert Hoffman was very close, you know, friends with Jünger. They would take LSD together. Um, You know, so I I think we, you know, it's important, you know, to not, you know, gild the lily, as it were, with these states that are brought on by these drugs. You know, they can be applied for good. They can be applied for ill. Uh, they could just be of you know entertainment value, you know. So yeah. um, I think the important thing is you know what you do with these states and why. Yeah, it is. It is interesting when you like when you do actually like think about what the DMT world is, and I know that um, Terence McKenna he he described it as like he he said like a bursting through like a membrane, and he's he's talked about how it was like a welcome of love. And he's talked about like when he, many people do explain. Uh, ex- sorry, he was talking about when many people explain the breaking through whether it's like eternal reality or world or dimension or whatever you want to call it. But I was wondering, like, where do you think that, like, bursting through is to? Like, what do you think is actually the nature of, like, the DMT world? I know it's quite, it's, it's quite speculation, but what do you feel it is? Well, I mean, I think, you know, currently it is, you know, limited, uh, you know, to our, you know, subjective reality. You know, yeah. I mean, even though it is a you know subjective experience, that wouldn't you know disqualify it from being you know common and real. I mean, everybody dreams, but you know nobody has ever dreamed somebody else's dream or you know taken a you know picture of your dream or um, those kinds of things. You know, but everybody knows that everybody dreams, uh, and those you know dreams just occur in our minds. Uh, you know, subjectively, that's the way we know we dream. You know, so the DMT state occurs in our minds. It's it's you know kind of located, or our you know perception of it is located there. You know, so you know whether or you know not it resides there, or it's you know uh, it is you know located there, or is you know located outside of us, and we're just you know you know perceiving it in our minds. Uh, yeah, I mean that's the you know sixty four thousand dollar question. Um, <laughs> you know. It, like if you know is that state or is you know the thing well are the things you know that we're seeing uh you know purely generated by the mind uh or are they just you know perceived by the mind in a way that they weren't able to be perceived before um you know like a telescope or a microscope allows us to you know see things in our mind uh 
which uh, are normally invisible, you know, radio telescopes, uh, all you know, kinds of you know, technology. You know, so it you know could be that you know DMT is this ultimate uh, you know technology uh, to you know provide access to external things which are you know normally um, invisible, like you know germs are normally invisible. Um, you know, stars, black holes are normally um, invisible, and uh, we you know have developed you know machines and you know technologies which um, allow us to you know to perceive you know those things and it you know it you know could be that you know DMT has you know got you know that kind of a uh you know biological you know technological interface uh you know kind of properties um you know in the future you know could be if these uh worlds exist external you know to us and uh for example, reside in black in in you know dark matter, dark energy. You know we might be able to you know to develop uh, you know cameras which are able to you know to capture images of the uh, uh, you know contents of those uh, you know parallel or external ongoing freestanding you know levels of reality. And once we take you know pictures of them, you know we could. Um, uh, you know, compare those images to what people report on DMT. You know, but until that time, um, yeah. I think the important thing is to, you know, carefully, you know, chart, you know, the territory, um, which would only result from, uh, you know, being able to spend more, you know, time in that state. You know, ultimately, I think it's a spectrum of, uh, you know, external, you know, versus internal, uh, you know, like, on, uh, you know, like, uh, well, it you know, could be at, you know, one extreme of that spectrum, you know, one pole of that spectrum is it's, you know, purely a you know, subjective, you know, personality brain, you know, generated experience. Um, and uh, on the other hand, it's completely external, you know, to us. Um, but it's, I, I, I don't think, uh, at the you know, practical you know level that one can uh, speak in you know terms of those kinds of extremes, it's always a you know combination thereof. You know, so depending on your personality, on your health, on your state of mind, uh, on your training, uh, you may want to think about what we're perceiving on you know DMT as you know more external than internal. You know, like you have a clean window or a clean lens and in you know, the case of an individual who's burdened by bad health bad psychology you know bad history um it you know could be that uh, what one experiences on you know DMT is more of a reflection like a like a mirror or even a you know clouded lens or a you know clouded window you know, so that you know kind of bespeaks the importance of you know self-development uh, in order to you know get the you know most out of anybody's uh, you know experiences on DMT. To, you know, to be able to you know differentiate what's you and what's and what's you know not you. You know, to the extent that you can, anyway. Yeah, I think that's absolutely fascinating, that Rick. And I think when you hit the nail on the head there, when you said like it, like it kind of just gives you like what you're like seeking 
but it's kind of like not what you're expecting and I think that's fascinating so it's it's what you need at that moment and that's and the um, DMT experience is just giving you that what you need in that moment in that area of your life at that time and I think that's incredible and I think a lot of people might come out of the experience like unaware of like what they've done and it's but it's really impacted them in such a unique way like and that's where we go into so much like depth on beyond the self because we weren't expecting it and it's something completely different than what we were expecting yeah uh, you know some you know people have you know terrible you know dmt experiences they're horrifying they're frightening they're terrifying they're painful yeah and you know that you know kind of um um, and, you know, that, you know, gets, you know, to the point that you were making, which is that uh, if, you know, somebody isn't, you know, ready for a big, you know, DMT experience, you know, they get the, you know, well, well, they get the message, you know, saying you've, you know, have got a, 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 you know, a lot of homework to do. You have to really work on yourself. You need to understand what happened to you just now. You know, so in the future, if you ever decide to, you know, try again, you'll be better prepared. mm that's beautiful. I think as well, like Rick, this like the DMT experience. It, it kind of like raises some very challenging and baffling questions in regards to like the current paradigm revolving around the nature of human perception and consciousness. Like, do you think this molecule has the potential to transform the way science views our place in the universe and how we perceive it? Yeah, yeah, I do, and I think that's one of the reasons people don't talk more about DMT in the mainstream. Uh, you know, Terence used to joke about the incredible, uh, you know, function, the inc- you know, uh, the incredible um, effects of DMT. You know, number one and number two, it exists within all of us, within all of our bodies. And you know, and you know, number three, if you increase you know levels by smoking or injecting it within a heartbeat or two. You're in this absolutely parallel universe, which uh, is, you know, it's uh, attained quite reliably, consistent, um, happens every time, just about. Yeah, and you know, Terence would, you know, kind of, you know, own the, you know, fact that it, you know, wasn't a headline on uh, the New York Times front page like once a week, saying, you know, we have DMT in our bodies and look what it does. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, 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 th- I think it just would. Uh, it, it really raises um, a lot of questions about you know how we know what we know, you know what we know, or what we think we know, um, about, um, um, about you know the nature of, you know, consensus reality, you know what we you know normally walk around in and interact with, you know how we consider ourselves. You know, so I think we need to look really carefully at, you know, what is the DMT state, number one, and also to uh, start to figure out, you know, what, you know, turns on the system and what, you know, turns off the system. You know, like how is the, you know, regulation of, you know, DMT maintained? You know, where are the genes? Well, we understand where the genes are, but, you know, what, you know, turns those genes on, what turns those genes off? Um, is you know DMT um, involved in the dream state? Is it involved in our perception of everyday reality? Um, yeah, and if so, y- y- uh, you know to what extent and you know why and you know what is perhaps uh, you know kind of uh, you know buttressing or un- or uh, 
underlying you know the DMT state if uh, our you know perception of you know consensus reality is a uh, you know, uh, a result of a steady level of a, you know, window of, you know, DMT concentrations in our brains. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, that the questions, you know, that the, well, that the existence and, um, and the, you know, properties of, um, of DMT rays are just, uh, yeah, yeah, they're endless. And, uh, you know, I think they're, you know, revolutionary in a way because uh, they would um, make us, you know, question a number of, you know, fundamental um, assumptions, you know, that we have. Yeah, definitely as well. I think I think them questions as well as as more, or the more questions that we need to be digging into as well. And before as well, Rick, when you said um, it raises um, it raises a question. I think when it, it raises a question within the societal structure because so because if you think about it, so DMT is currently like a schedule one drug. However, we know that, like you said before, we know that DMT is manufactured within our bodies, and obviously, and the compound has like this, like this beneficial potential in the domains of like scientific understanding as well, as well as the spiritual exploration which we've been talking about through this podcast. So, and it's curious why like a natural brain hormone like DMT is like still Schedule One drug, yet, like we said before, we're talking about the ancients, the ancients like Egyptians pegged it as like the tree of life. And I was thinking, like, shouldn't we have like sovereignty over our own consciousness in a way? Yeah, well, that's a you know complicated issue is the scheduling of these drugs. Uh, yeah, and you know, uh, the government is you know currently in you know is responsible in you know charge of uh, you know determining what you know drugs are legal and what you know drugs aren't. Um, yeah, and and it is you know the case that our bodies make DMT. But, you know, the concentrations are extremely low, you know, so when you're looking at an abusable or, you know, dangerous, you know, substance, you know, if you drink, you know, too much water, it can kill you. If you are exposed to, you know, concentrations of oxygen, which are, you know, too high, they'll blind you. Um, you know, so DMT in everyday, you know, consciousness as, you know, you know, um, you know the concentrations in our bloodstream, our body, our spinal fluid are extremely low, you know, so, you know, the issue of, you know, scheduling our bodies uh, is a little bit of a, you know, hyperbolic uh, approach, uh, you know, because it's all about concentration or, you know, dose as it were. Um, and, you know, people can abuse drugs, you know, there's no question yeah. about it. Uh, and, you know, and, you know, some, you know, drugs are more abusable than others. You know, for example, DMT is more abusable than water. Uh, you know, so... I think uh, there still, you know, needs to be a, you know, discussion about the scheduling of these drugs, which will allow, you know, their use in a, you know, non-abusable, you know, setting. Um, yeah. And, you know, the Egyptians, you know, may have used, you know, DMT, you know, the, you know, tribes in the Amazon are using DMT and ayahuasca. You know, there's DMT being, uh, you know, used... Uh, in uh, you know Western civilization for spiritual purposes, you know, but um, I uh, I you know think that all because the these you know drugs you know can be used in a you know beneficial way you know doesn't take anything away you know from the fact that they can be abused and cause uh, you know great yeah. harm at the same time you know so, you know so I. I think it's important to, you know, create a, 
uh, you know, context, uh, you know, for the safe and the optimal use of these drugs. Uh, but at, you know, the same time, uh, you know, maintain some responsibility and some liability and some, uh, you know, some, you know, some regulation over their use. Uh, you know, I, I don't think, you know, for example, that, you know, that, you know, um, well, that LSD ought to be um, as, uh, you know, freely available as, you know, cannabis in, you know, recreational cannabis, you know, settings. You know, yeah. LSD is a lot more, you know, powerful, can cause more problems. But uh, I think if, you know, somebody wants to, you know, take LSD or DMT in a spiritual setting and a, you know, scientific setting, you know, you know, to do research, uh, you know, to enhance creativity, you know, you know, for all, you know, manner of other reasons or, you know, beneficial reasons or at least, you know, you know, potentially beneficial reasons, it ought to be easier, you know, than the current scheduling structure. Yeah, definitely. You know, provides for. Yeah, definitely. So there's going to be. Yeah, I I think you know if a new schedule were created you know somewhere between you know 1 and 2 as it were you know 1a let's say you know where they're still controlled you know but uh there would be you know places other than the you know research you know setting where you know people could you know safely and responsibly you know take and administer these you know substances you know for various purposes yeah, I agree as well, and I think as well. Yeah, I think as well because I think as well we're talking about the confines of what society brings, like the current structure. And I think it's because this. I think that the social structure that are, that's currently in play are sort of saying that the material world is the only world, and the one. In a way, I think that's why it's in place because they want to try and stay us away from this natural world. And I remember when uh, I think Terrence McKenna he was talking about. He said that I think he said a ten-minute hit of DMT was worth um, 20 years of academic studies. So probably that's another reason as well. But um, I know as well your work on the subject of, of um, DMT is probably one of the most like detailed like DMT research in existence, in my opinion. But I was wondering, like, what were some of like the key conclusions you made about the nature of DMT, sort of like in the correspondence to like, human consciousness over all your research? Well, are you asking about the long-term effects of being exposed to a big dose of DMT? Just in general, Rick? Well, you know, I think that it establishes uh, the existence of another, you know, level of reality, um, which can be entered into reliably, consistently, uh, through the administration of a, you know, high dose of this substance. Um, You know, so that's important. You know, that's important information. Uh, you know, and yeah, you know, what were the, yeah, well, you know, people ask me, you know, what I learned from my DMT study. You know, what did, you know, well, like I, you know, described the volunteers' experiences. And uh, I think, you know, one of the conclusions that I came to at the end of my first DMT book is that overall, you know, that the benefit wasn't really all that outstanding, especially with the risks that were potential as well. But um, I think I was premature in, in, you know, those conclusions uh, because I just think it took longer, you know, than the amount of time that that I, you know, followed up with people, you know, for the long-term effects to make themselves, uh, 
known or you know to manifest um you know be, because the you know the, well you know because the DMT you know world is you know so disjoint from our everyday world that it takes a lot of time to incorporate it to integrate it you know so i think one of the main conclusions that i came completed my study is that you know there is another you know world out there and you take DMT and you can describe it i mean it's described in a consistent manner it exists um yeah. but you know what the importance of that world um existing you know what is good for wasn't that clear to me and i i think it was because it wasn't that clear to the volunteers either other than it existed and it, it you know like i was saying it required more time for them to um, incorporated, integrated, um, you know, manifested in their lives. Um, you know, so, you know, volunteers, as, you know, time went on, they, uh, you know, some of them changed fields. A uh, number of them uh, developed a spiritual practice that they hadn't uh, been involved with before. Or, or, or they, you know, deepen their involvement with that practice. Uh, they describe being less afraid of death, uh, more open to the creative process of letting go, those kinds of things, um, which, you know, weren't all that clear to me as, you know, the research, you know, wound down. Um, I suppose, you know, my, you know, take-home lessons were, you know, number one, there is a spiritual level of reality, uh, number two, there is a God, which it, you know took me you know uh, you know quite a while you know to come to, and you know in the context of you know doing my research, uh, the you know third thing I concluded was that I was you know that I was in way over my head, <laughs> you know it was just a little too much for me at the time with the toolkit I had at my disposal. I think as well, Rick, when you said that, I think maybe. I was thinking maybe when when humans when like we do evolve to that next stage, maybe we'll we'll be allowed access that next uh, stage of intelligence. Maybe that's the case. We'll have to wait till that next next till that comes around. Yeah, I think you know we're just at the very very beginning of this process. Well, you know one of my you know favorite science fiction authors is a Brit named Olaf Stapleton, and uh, he wrote a, a book called First and Last Men about nineteen species of humans. And, you know, the last, you know, dozen are a result of, you know, genetic engineering imposed by humans on other humans. And, you know, a new species, you know, develops. And, um, you know, if, if you, you know, read his descriptions of the mental, you know, world of the 19th species of humans, uh, it's, you know, pretty, you know, far out. It's, you know, quite abstract, like, you know, world, you know, telepathy occurs like every other you know like every human is able to you know share in the subjective reality of every other human on the planet and uh there's all you know kinds of things which are uh, you know created as a result of every individual human you know joining you know subjective spiritual you know forces at the same time in uh, unison you know in in his you know world view it requires you know, 35,000 years, you know, to live, you know, long enough to be able to attain that state. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah, when you start to look at the, you know, ramifications of what the, you know, DMT world, 
uh, you know, seems to be offering us a glimpse of uh, the implications are pretty staggering. Mm. And I think uh, you hit the nail right in the head again there, like Henry, because I think what we've been talking about through this is that this process is so powerful and so special that not everyone is ready for it. And I think that's so unique in what you've, you've been seeing. And I think like Dan's right, like when the human evolves to like a level where they can understand this and it becomes a bit more common in the practice of people, then it'll be a different story. But I think right now, Rick, on this time frame where we're at right now is that DMT is out there um, for people who are really searching for it. And I think when people search for it and they find it, they're going to find their true selves because they're going to find the answer that they've been seeking through a practice which is called out of them instead of it just being like a regulator just running your mill drug that people could see in the markets. Whereas I think that would be a diff where people are, I don't think, ready for that yet. And I think what we're all seeing here is that the process of DMT is so beautiful that when we do seek it, it's so special to us because it's we found it. And I think that's beautiful what we're all talking about right here. It's a you know complicated thing. I mean, obviously, uh, yeah. I you know I, you know think of DMT you know more as a tool you know than anything else. Um, and uh, like any tool, you need to know how to use it. Um, mm. And you know, hopefully, you'll be using it for the good rather than you know for the bad. You know, I hear from you know people, their you know friends, you know family every so often about people who. Uh, you know, clearly should never have used DMT, and they just go in and way overboard, and they basically develop a very hard-to-treat chronic psychosis, or they end up in jail, or they end up in a mental hospital. You know, so, yeah, I, I mean, I don't encourage anyone to take DMT, and hopefully I've, you know, not been, you know, giving, you know, that impression. Um, but, you know, still, most people don't, you know, follow my advice, and if they're going to use DMT, you know, they ought to be uh, you know, you, well, uh, uh, the, uh, well, they should be prepared. Uh, you know, know what they're getting into. Educate themselves. You know, do as much of uh, you know groundwork as they can beforehand if you know they're going to use it. Uh, and then uh, you know, work on integrating and you know and uh, and you know sharing uh, uh, what they uh, you know perceive under the influence. Mm. So, Rick, uh, from all the DMT research you've done and upon all these like conclusions, how do you envision like the future of DMT research? Um, well, you know, there's a you know number of different models. Uh, you know, the whole question of you know you know how we know what we know, the whole you know the whole uh, you know question of, of uh, what is you know called epistemology. Is you know raised obviously you know philosophically you know by the um, existence of DMT and its effects and uh, the you know fact you know the brain you know seems to require it you know the eyes you know seem to be you know making it as well you know so there are you know philosophical issues uh, which can be addressed and uh, and investigated regarding you know the DMT phenomena. You know, there's, you know, clinical research. Um, you can help people uh, with, you know, carefully, admi you know, with, you know, carefully administered, uh, you know, DMT. You know, ayahuasca, you know, seems to be quite helpful. 
for a number of you know medical you know psychological you know conditions like addiction and depression uh you know fear of of you know death um you know so, you know so there are you know treatment implications of you know DMT you know in in you know, particular but you know psychedelics in general uh you know there's what i would call you know uh you know clinical spirituality research uh which you know gives these you know drugs uh to enhance one's spiritual practice you know so that is a you know valid use and ought to be pursued um you know characterizing the you know DMT effect uh as carefully as you know possible is key and i think with the continuous infusion model that andrew gallimore and i published a few months back we'll be able to uh kind of explore in more you know detail you know what is the exact nature of the dmt world you know like it, you know like you know for example you know what happens if you you know pick up a rock in the dmt world and you hit it with a hammer you, you know that just isn't known um, and uh, if you have more time in the DMT stage, you'll be able to, you know, perform those kind of experiments. You know, more and more people will come back with those kinds of data. Um, I mean, there's, you know, cosmological, you know, questions like, uh, you know, some of our volunteers describe the Big Bang, as it were, and, you know, the conden and the, you know, condensation of energy into matter, you know, matter into, uh, you know, galaxies, gas clouds, those kinds of things, you know, slowing down enough into consciousness you know so uh i think you know smart you know physicists you know cosmologists ought to be able to you know to have access to a big you know dmt state to uh um allow their imaginations to uh range or roam more freely over their uh you know topic of interest to you know see if you know they could either confirm or refute you know some of their mathematical models uh at you know the level of experience yeah, you know, so there's, you know, yeah, <clears throat> you know, there's a world of uh, work to be done. Yeah, definitely. Rick, I just wanted to ask you, like, how do you think, like, how do you envision the role of DMT within, like, the mechanics of, like, a future culture that has, like, embraced it? Like, what kind of, like, role could it, like, potentially play in the areas of, like, science, uh, technology, and even, like, spiritual exploration in the future? Along the lines of what I, we were just talking about, um, yeah, you know, scientific models uh, could be built, you know, based on the DMT experience. Uh, you know, spiritual you know, practice could be enhanced, you know, theoretically. You know, that's currently mostly taking place within the confines of the Latin American shamanic model and the Eastern religious model. You know, the kind of non-dual uh, Amadvaita ego loss, you know, model. But, you know, that isn't anything like what happens with DMT. I mean, the, you, you know, with a big, uh, you know, dose of DMT, there's no ego loss. You're completely in yourself and you're interacting with this, uh, you know, independent, you know, world that you're, you're relating to. You know, so I, I think a more interactional, relational, you know, model of spirituality can also be, um, you know, fortified or investigated or... Um, be you know supercharged you know tuber uh, well you know turbocharged as a result um, of you know the DMT experience as well. Mm. Well, Rick, that's a fantastic insight on what the future may hold for uh, for DMT. And the last thing we've just got to ask you is like, 
what do you, where can people find you and what are you currently working on? Oh, uh, well, <clears throat> you know, if you know, people want to reach me, they can, you know, do so through my website, rickstrassman.com. They can order books through my site. I answer all emails or, you know, 99.9% you know, of emails. Um, and uh, what am I working on? Well, three things, I guess. I'm working, well, I guess, you know, four things. You know, one is I am keeping my, you know, fingers in the you know, psychedelic you know, research pie. Um, I, you know, help other groups with their studies, consult, you know, co-author, you know, papers sometimes. Um, I'm working on a translation and commentary of the Old Testament because it's, you know, kind of been what I find most interesting as a spiritual, you know, model for the spiritual effects of the psychedelic drugs. And there just aren't any user-friendly translations and commentaries on the text. It's usually uh, from a, uh, you know, perspective of one's, you know, denomination or their axe to grind. So uh, I'm, you know, working on a, you know, psychologically, you know, psychedelicized, you know, version of, uh, you know, the, you know, translation of the text. Um, oh. I'm working on some autobiographical stuff. Um, I think I've had an interesting, you know, life, and I've been, you know, taking notes on it since I was, you know, 17 years old. So I'm starting to put all those, you know, notes into some, you know, uh, you know, some coherent form. Um, and I'm really interested in the character of Abraham, as described in the Bible. You know, he lived a, you know, fully prophetic life, uh, but it was, you know, before the law was laid down at Mount Sinai. You know, so you know his you know life was a you know prophetic life, and uh, it was uh, infused and uh, you know directed through his uh, experience of you know the prophetic state, which you know sh which uh, you know shares quite a few you know features with the DMT state. You know, so in a way, I'm fascinated by him as a you know figure from the past who you know whose life you know manifested. Uh, as completely in tune with you know the insights that he obtained in a state very you know similar to the DMT state, you know so I suppose uh, it would be a you know form of of you know biblical you know fiction of of you know biblical fiction, but uh, you know from the perspective of uh, a spiritual slash uh, you know psychedelic worldview. Yeah, Rick. When you, when you said there about the psychedelic uh, like translation of the um, the Hebrew Bible, that that would be so fascinating, and we'll have to definitely like when you delve a bit more further into that, that would be so fascinating, that even in the future, to get you back on and like discover what your findings were like so far. That would be so cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, definitely. And like share with our audience, like what. Well, you, you know, know, yeah, you know, it's going to be a lifetime project. I mean, I've I've been you know working on <clears throat> this for maybe six months or so. In a concerted manner, I just you know finished chapter one of Genesis. You know, it's yeah, yeah. You know, so uh, I mean, I'd be happy to describe the work in progress, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's going to probably be only halfway done by the time I die. But uh, still, it's a you know worthy effort. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
I'd just like to say thank you so much for all your work in the like the DMT research, Rick, and we do really appreciate your time. And I think the world needs like so much more people like you who's willing to like put everything on the edge and like try and push push a positive movement and try and seek out real knowledge in the world. And I'd just like to say thank you so much for like being with us today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Rick. Well, thanks. Yeah, I enjoyed the interview. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we covered a lot of you know very interesting and important stuff. Thanks for taking time out your day to listen to the podcast. The concept around Rick Strassman's work in DMT is such a fascinating one. But please don't forget to subscribe and leave a review of the podcast. And also don't forget to head over our website and check out the show notes. Anyway guys, have a great day and we'll see you next week when we have another cool guest. Peace.